In our dance schools, activity is key because no one really wants to walk into a lifeless environment. It's got to be fun. It's got to be vibrant. It's the same thing for your website. We're no longer in an age where you can have a set it and forget it website, and this is where HubSpot can really help you out. HubSpot can take your website and turn it into a content marketing machine. It's the perfect one-stop shop to easily add new landing pages, email marketing, blogging, even automated workflows for your site. If you want to see if HubSpot's right for you, listeners of this show are getting a free inbound marketing ebook to get you started. Just visit HubSpot.com slash off the floor. That's HubSpot.com slash off the floor and add some activity to your website. My name is Chris Lynham and I am your host of Off the Floor, the show that is all about the learning process, the critical pivots along the way, and the positive ripple effects from those decisions. There may be a version of you that is waiting to make an appearance when the time is right, like hibernation. My guest today has gone from military life to a law degree and eventually led him to becoming a best-selling author located in Alaska and living out his dream, no longer in hibernation. His name is Craig Martell, and he is my guest today on Off the Floor. I'm really excited to have you on the show, Craig. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. Uh, I spent 20 years, a little over 20 years in the Marine Corps. And then uh, once I finished uh, and retired, I had to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. So I went to law school, got a law degree, and then uh, instantly went into business consulting using uh, my business law background and my uh, affinity towards spreadsheets. So we embrace process improvement, uh, various uh, methodologies to streamline a business process in order to save them money. Over the course of my seven and a half years working with companies, I saved them over $40 million. So uh, either through process or better leadership or a, a variety of things. So the business consulting background, but I was gone over half my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it required a lot of traveling. On site with the client was a big thing. I mean, it was very, very lucrative. They paid well. And then uh, uh, I, I invested that well. So I uh, was able to retire from that. And so, well, what can I do? Uh, I always wanted to write a book. Let me write a book. And uh, I did that. I put in uh, all my process improvement stuff. And during my whole life, I was an avid reader. So I've read thousands of science fiction books. In the old days, I always, in the Marine Corps, I always had a book with me in, in my pack or, or wherever. And then we'd trade out. I was kind of in a geeky uh, field, uh, Russian crypto linguist. So we were almost all universally uh, science fiction readers. Nice. So it, we'd all take one book and then trade them all out as we, as we went. So read a lot. I can write fairly well. You go to law school, you're going to write a lot. It's a different style of writing than fiction, but it's still writing. It's still jamming the words. It's still being able to type fast, which is important. And so I combined everything in my life into this new business of uh, being an author. And today I just checked. I'm number 26 in the world for science fiction authors uh, on Amazon. So Wow, congratulations. uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, I'm always surprised to see it, but it's been uh, March 6th of 2017 was the last time I was out of the top 100 in science fiction authors on Amazon. Wow. So, so now with all of these pivots, you know, I think people usually have maybe like 
one or two really big pivots in their life. And, you know, it seems like you've had several. So do you feel like it was part of a master plan? Do you feel like you've always kind of been looking for the next thing? Or was it just kind of like something where it was just right in front of you and you just decided to go for it? You have to do what you need to do at the time you need to do it. Uh, for me, Marine Corps was uh, was the right thing to do, re-enlisting and then going and getting my commission uh, and then working uh, the rest of the career so I could retire because then it's a paycheck a month for life, uh, retired from the uh, military. And then what do you want to do? Okay, hey, I always wanted to X. Maybe it was a life bucket list that I created sometime way in the past. And as things popped up, it's like, yes, I want to do that. Unfortunately, if you put some things off until you get older, like uh, going to Machu Picchu and hiking to the top, uh, that's, that's beyond me at present. I've had some damage to my lungs, so I can't physically make it now. So you don't want to put off those things until later. So right now in my life with my uh, physical capabilities restricted, this is the perfect career. I get to do it from home. I cook dinner for my wife. She's a professor at the university. So when she comes home, I'll, I'll, I'll have dinner ready and stuff like that. We have a dog, so I get out a lot. I spend a couple hours uh, a day outside every day with, uh, with Phyllis, the Arctic dog. <laughs> so now like when, when you think about, you know, people refer to writing as an escape, you know, just like they have that art therapy and things like that. And it sounds like you've taken that to another level writing and with where you live in Alaska, was that like, how did you end up in Alaska? And, and was that part of an escape or is that just something, was that another bizarre sequence of events? When you're in the military, uh, you go where they tell you to go. So my wife followed me. And uh, once I retired, she went to finish her PhD. And once she got her PhD, you go where the job is. So now I'm in the position of where I have to follow her. As a business consultant, I traveled. So it didn't matter where I was. And uh, I worked, actually, I got transferred to the North Slope of Alaska. So I had the shortest commute of anybody. People are like, okay, it's minus 74. That's the coldest I've ever experienced, which is just insane. It's, it's kill you cold. And uh, they're like, hey, when you get off work, you're going to the same thing. You're an idiot. And other people are going to like, one guy lived in Thailand and commuted from Thailand to the North Slope every two weeks. And wow. other folks lived in Hawaii or down in Texas. And they went to warmth. And I'm like, no, it's the same temperature uh, when I go home. So it's cold. Uh, let's talk about like your, your origins. Like you mentioned, you know, you kind of had geeky military guys, you guys are all swapping books, but like trace it back. Like, was there, where was your origin story when it came to sci-fi? Is, is there like a book you could point to? Was it a movie? Like where, where would you trace it back to? Oh, better than that, man. I, I grew up in the Midwest about 120 miles from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And I was a child of the sixties. So come 1974, when Gary Gygax uh, published and started selling Dungeons and Dragons, I lived not very far away. So we would road trip over to Lake Geneva and, uh, and, and play games, and, and we were right in on the ground floor. It was all them. I, just came, I was a fan. Yeah. And uh, my, my brother brought the set for me and uh, the original Dungeons and Dragons. And then I had the honor of uh, buying Gamma World when it first came out and Metamorphosis Alpha games by uh, James M. Ward. And they were the first science fiction role-playing games. And I loved those. I thought they were the optimal because I, I never could never get my head wrapped around magic users. So uh, mm. in D&D, &D, I always played a fighter. You know, it's uh, interesting because I have a, a job that's more cerebral. However, when I play, I play uh, the uh, let's bash them. Um, that's, that's my favorite character. And uh, meeting James Ward, and then now that uh, now that I write, and I've been writing for uh, almost three years now full time, I got to meet James M. Ward, and I'm, I've co-authored some stuff with him. So talking about coming full circle back to, hey, this is it. I, I don't know if it's the epitome of, of a life and a career, 
but it's it's just damn cool all the way around yeah that is cool gosh and i gotta ask you now the the you know the ready player one question because you mentioned gygax i mean how do you feel like the you know did you i'm sure you read the book never watched the movie either oh no watch the movie <laughs> And okay. then listen to the audiobook because uh, Will Wheaton does the audiobook and he's okay. fantastic. There won't be a letdown because the, the, the movie is really for like mass appeal and then the book is really for the uber, you know, geek that okay. is an aficionado on all things sci-fi and fantasy and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, that's a... Uh... I like it. I could pull up Amazon right now, and I bet you that uh, Ernest Klein and I are are not far away from each other yeah. uh, in the ranks. However, he's got the, all that money revenue uh, coming in, and I'm just got books. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I suck. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you think about like doing the role playing games as kind of like your foray into this space, it, do you feel like that's kind of something that? you know, especially now with, with virtual reality and people want to create more of an experience rather than just, you know, like one kind of like a medium where you're, you know, you're just kind of like observing a world, you know, talk about that. Like, do you feel like you'd be where you are right now? Had you only been interested in say like a movie or a book, what was it about being in the game that really kind of set things off for you? The, the game was about developing the story. And uh, my brother is uh, eight years older than me. So I had to spend a lot of time by myself. So if you're by yourself and you're trying to play a game, well, you have to uh, take on all the rules. And that means creating a world in which you adventure. And uh, now that uh, I, I know a fair number of science fiction authors, both uh, traditionally published, self-published, many of them are very, very successful. And when I talk to them, I think one of our common roots is that most of them were dungeon masters in D&D. Wow. Uh, so Gary Gygax's legacy to the world is fomenting the imagination, helping people explore their imagination and turn that into stories for other people, which is what a dungeon master, or now they call him a game master, does. I think that was the crux of turning an imagination into a medium for other people to enjoy. Yeah. And so, yeah, we write books, and, and people have been writing books for thousands of years, but Epic of Gilgamesh, okay, yeah, blood destroys the world. I mean, it was a long time ago, but people still tell stories. I think humans, by their nature, are storytellers. But getting that down into a book form, written form, is a little bit different, a different style, but it's still natural. And you get into that by reading a lot. You can adjust flow and things like that that go with it. So the artistic side, because you think, well, lawyer, how is a lawyer artistic? Well, there's a certain art to it. And uh, having read a lot of books, okay, I know what I like. So I write what I've read that I liked, not copying their stuff, but... The, the ideas. I, I really was a big fan of Star Trek, the original series, and DC Fontana, her ability to create stories based on the culture of the day. What's the issue of the day? And then how can you paint that on a science fiction backdrop where it's safe to talk about? Mm. And that's what uh, I think we can do with uh, science fiction. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that. It's kind of like a, it's like a gel cap, you know, it's, it's a way that can, can deliver a message, but it's, it's, encapsulated in something that's like easy to digest. Yep. Um, I, I'm such a fan of that. Let's just say you, you were co-authoring or, you know, it, this is your biography and it's talking about your career. And let's say about like you're leaving, you know, the life in the military and then you're shifting gears. You're taking that huge, bold step into just full-time writing. What would be the title of that chapter if you had to come up with, you know, a title for it? These aren't things you can take lightly. Talking about titles, the, the title of my first book was It's Not Enough to Just Exist. 
which I thought was really impactful because it's talking about, okay, I, if I survive something, I'm existing, but how do we make sure that it's a life worth living? So uh, I wrote that book, I published it, and I marketed it, and 87% of all people who responded to the ad were girls aged 13 to 17, and zero of them bought the book. So <laughs> if you want a book to target teenage girls, it's not enough to just exist is a great title. So that, that title <laughs> no longer exists uh, in my books because it wasn't right. So a chapter title of my life uh, after the Marine Corps before going uh, full-time author, I don't know. I'd have to contemplate it as far as impact. How could I put a marketing campaign around this? It, it's interesting because you think, well, you're an author. You come up with words. You use words for a living. Oh, shit, man, you put me on the spot. I got, how am I supposed to? I'm sorry, I swore. I, I don't swear. You're um, fine. <laughs> so how, how do I do this? Oh, my God, words, words. The braining is so hard. That's like my wife will ask me to compose, you know, she'll say, just, you know, write another blog article or can you just write this email that's going to solve all these problems? You know, do it real quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So, so it's a, it'd probably be more motivational in that uh, words matter. Uh, I got a review from a person on one of my books and I published fairly quickly uh, in a series. I published a 10 book series in, in seven months wow. and it was uh, 750,000 words of published material. So a rather significant series. And I got a review once that said, uh, thank you for publishing these. I get to look forward to them. I get a new one, new book every three weeks. It is literally keeping me alive. She was like in hospice. And she said, I, I look forward to these books and, and thank you for, for writing them. It's like, you got to be kidding me. I, she's saying that my books are keeping her alive. That story with all these characters, I, I title all my stuff space opera. Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, like soap opera, except space. It's got the characters. Uh, Star Trek, the original series, I consider space opera because it's got characters and you care about the characters, not so much that the phaser is, uh, is so many gigahertz. There's people that do care about that, but the majority uh, and my readers do not. They care that the characters are put in these situations and how do they resolve it. So the title of the chapter would have to be Words Matter. Mm. So you can make them matter or, or put out uh, something that doesn't. I, I prefer to... Put out good words. <laughs> That's cool. So let's talk like inspiration now. You know, like there's always that famous story about how George Lucas, he was inspired by his dog to create Chewbacca, right? And, you know, who would you say is, is your muse? I mean, for maybe a memorable character that you have, is there, is there somebody that you, you look to? Maybe is it some of your old military buddies? Like, you know, who have you really uh, used as kind of as your muse and inspiration in some of your writing? Oh, I, ha I have to say a lot of my, uh, my teammates from the old days are in there in one way or another. Some of the absolute funniest situations I've ever been in in my life were also the most stressful. Mm. Uh, when you're looking at a situation where if you do something wrong, you're going to die, people can really do some funny things. I, I, we were out over the Atlantic testing a, a certain piece of uh, communication gear, and the helicopter had to fly away from the, uh, the, away from the ships. And so we're on a Huey. And we're going to kick these antennas down because geeky, we needed vertical polarization and you couldn't get that on a Huey helicopter because of the blades, clearly. So we're going to do vertical, but hey, vertical, we can point it down as easily as up. So uh, we go through all of this and we kick the antenna down and the coax cable pops out of it. Oh man. And, and we're like, oh man, anybody have a pliers? Nobody had a pliers. So they're like, hey, Marty, let me hook you up. So they hooked me up. And I'm upside down, hanging over the skid, trying to get this thing back together. I'm looking all around. I can't see the ship. 
Oh. And then I have the I have the headphones on, right? And the pilot says, "We're losing fuel." I don't see any fuel falling off, but he's like, we're, we need to get back to the ship. We're losing fuel. So we, so we go back to the ship. And uh, so after all this, okay, I can't get it back on. So all of that, all of that to get that flight, go out there and test the equipment and we loot the coax cable. So it was an unsuccessful test. And uh, we go back to the ship and they're like, hey, landing spots are taken up. There's no place to land. So we circle once and he says, we need to land. We're, we're out of fuel. And they said, well, circle again. We're, there's no landing spots. And he's like, I, I need to land. So the LST, the landing ship tank, has a little landing spot on it. We do a crash landing onto that because that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those kinds of things, those kinds of situations, they're funny now. It really wasn't that funny at the time. But, uh, you, you go through this stuff and all of that, if you read my Terry Henry Walton Chronicles, I have uh, almost 3 million words published. You'll see those situations and you're like, that's kind of ridiculous. It's funny, but it's kind of, it's like, no, that's, that's real. <laughs> that, that came from something that really happened. Oh man. Well, I can imagine too, you know, we, we make all these references too when it comes to training our staff in terms of like teamwork and reliability. And, and we, we always somehow find some sort of connection to the military or, or a band of brothers episode from HBO series and things like that. And, and I can imagine like what you said about when you're in one of those precarious situations that you just have to be able to have some levity and to be able to look back on it and laugh about it. Um, I'm sure that like, you know, that's forged like some really great bonds beyond that too. But what did that do for you in terms of trust? Like, do you feel like, you know, does that accelerate things for you guys when it comes to like your group? Do you feel like it's like a binding agent when you're, when you're going through the ringer like that with each other? Well, well, you know who you can trust. And uh, the probably the worst part is when you see somebody break down, because that's almost a guarantee that person will be ostracized, never going to be a good part of the group again, because they, they broke apart when you really needed them. Uh, and the guys who are funny, it's like, that's the guy we can count on. That's the guy who's going to be there if, uh, you know, any rounds come in or the, there's an explosion or something, then uh, we know that person will be there and we know this guy won't. And that's, that's a, a tragedy and a shame. And probably a lot of people uh, who might suffer from PTSD or something, it's uh, it's they couldn't control and they and they broke down and now all of a sudden they're ostracized by their friends so it's it's the double whammy on your psyche mm -hmm. and and we as people need to be more aware that not everybody reacts the same way to every situation so in a high stress situation if somebody melts down you need to be there for them if they can't be there for you you need to be there for them and that's uh, so there's all different kinds of great lessons you can take away from situations and i think i always call uh, stress as a window into someone's soul the higher the stress, the better view you're going to have. Wow, that's great. So I want to find out now, because you, know, you shifted from the military and then you went into that work as, a, as an analyst. And when you talked about the process, if you were kind of evaluating the process of you writing, which is a process in and of itself, I mean, you're talking about millions of words, right? What would you say, like, if you could look back at the early stages of your process, what would you adjust? What's something that you know definitely now that's more important that you'd maybe put higher on the priority list or things like that? How would you evaluate your own process as, you know, in becoming a, a writer like you are now? The big difference between then and now is uh, getting an editor involved earlier, getting beta readers involved earlier. Uh, when I first started writing, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any authors. I didn't know anybody to read my stuff. And I didn't have an editor. I published my first book without having it run it through a, an editor, mm. uh, whether electronic, grammarly, or something like that. So I, I, I just published it. It was, it was bad. I mean, there was a number of typos and some half sentences, even though I read it like 20 times, but still. Yeah, getting those people involved earlier, it's worth the wait to search. However, if I hadn't published that first book, which I then retitled, recovered, and a traditional publisher bought that series, 
So that first book became a trilogy that I then added, uh, we contract and did a fourth book for. And that was a bestseller. It hit well. It made, made a lot of money. All because I hit publish on a book that wasn't necessarily ready to be published, but it got the visibility that, hey, you could tell a story. You just need an editor. You need a new cover. You need a new title, definitely, because we're not marketing to 13 to 17-year-old girls. So <laughs> it, was post, it was a post-apocalyptic survival book. So, yeah. But uh, that title is available. It's not enough to just exist. If you're considering that genre, uh, <laughs> there you go. It's a good one. It, uh, it markets well to that demographic. <laughs> I love that. I think too many people are waiting for the, the perfect moment and they're not willing to go through that beta round like you just said. And, and also just bringing in somebody as an editor, there's always this fear of rejection and, and, and you know, fear of somebody kind of looking in your underwear drawer, so to speak. Um, so uh, talk about that now. Like, you know, if you think about now for, for our community and the people that are listening to the show, you, know, you have a collection of people that might be dance enthusiasts. You have people that are also just business enthusiasts or podcast enthusiasts. What's something that you feel like is a universal trait that more people could learn from that part of your story? When you hit publish, when you write something and put it out there, uh, think of uh, Back to the Future, George McFly. Oh, nobody reads my stories because he didn't, he didn't want that rejection, that fear of failure. You know what? You, you're going to fail, but you can fail better. And you fail better and better until you write that book that, and tell that story that resonates. My first story was sound, but it had technical flaws. It had a lot of issues. I wouldn't know that if I had tried to just do it and leave it alone and not take any feedback, I wouldn't be where I am today as a, a top 100 sci-fi best-selling author. If I hadn't listened to the feedback, if I hadn't gotten that feedback, if I hadn't tried to improve... I improved my word count. My first goal was a thousand words a day. Now I average 2,700 words a day, but every day for a thousand and fifty days straight. So wow. it's a place you can get to. So I track my word count. I get my beta readers involved early. I have a great team. They're fans, but they're also very, they're critical. They give me great feedback, say this doesn't work, this does work, whatever it might be. My editor is always willing to look at any kind of uh, bits and pieces. Uh, I, I actually have an editor on salary even because I, I do have enough work that, hey, I just throw it here. Take a look at this. Wow. Uh, and taking that feedback and looking at it with a business hat on and, and not your, I'm the artist, you're telling me my baby is ugly hat. <laughs> hey, you've got, you've got this hat and then you've got your business hat. You need to separate the two. When you put on your business hat, because if the readers are saying, I don't like this, the readers aren't going to like that and then they're not going to buy they will have already bought that book, but they're not going to buy the next one. So you need to keep them excited about the story so they buy the next one too because they like it. It made them feel good. And that's, that's the, the stories that I write. I want people to feel good at the end. I don't want them uh, Stephen King where they're terrorized, where they're never going to open their closet door again <laughs> uh, or go in the basement. Hey, I don't go in the basement, man. There's stuff down there. Uh, so no, I want people to feel good and, and feel happy and be part of the story at the end and ready for the next one. That is so great. I love that. So, uh, so I think that your story is so great in terms of just, you know, what people can learn about like the confidence to like defy the conventional safe track, you know, that you can go with something steady and you can go with something that's conventional or you can, you know, that it, it takes this like big risk to kind of go like a different way. And, and what do you feel like is the thing that holds the most people back from doing that? Is it, is it just like you need to just throw them in the fire? Like how, what would you say to those people? That's a tough one because uh, if you have a family, there's a significant risk that uh, you're going to write something that people will buy. 
and that you'll be able to sell it because if you're a self-published author, you have to sell it too. And not, not everybody is a good salesman. I'm not a good salesman, but I do have enough material that it, it kind of sells itself just by, by volume. Quantity has a quality all its own. Mm-hmm. And I have a good team. So these are quality books in quantity. But uh, if you have a young family, you might go six months without making money. And uh, I had a year, a year of funds banked when I started writing full time. So I didn't, it was really no stress to buy extra covers to, cause I bought covers. I just used final three covers on one series that I bought two years ago. Wow. And these, and these covers cost me about $2,000 a couple wow. years ago. And so I've been sitting on them as I went waiting and, and writing other stuff before writing these last three books. But uh, so I finally got to use those, which is good for now because now profitability, I don't buy these covers, but I sold the books as opposed to, two years ago where I bought the covers and never had the books earning revenue from them. So there's a significant business management element, uh, cash flow being a big thing. And you know, with the, you're running your dance studios, you need, you need some cash now. You got to pay your people. You've made promises later uh, on, on services that people pay for now, but they're not paying for later. So you have to have that revenue stream later. Mm-hmm. And all of these things come into play. And a lot of people, it's like, but I just want to write. Well, you can do that, but uh, I went to the CIFWA conference and I was really surprised, Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America, I was really surprised at how many big name authors had day jobs. Wow. Because the publishers, traditional publishing is paying fewer and fewer royalties because they don't need to. And also because uh, 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 book sales aren't what they used to be. And traditional publishing really relies on hardback sales and, and stuff like that. And those are kind of tapering off. You look at Barnes & Noble is the only place to buy them that uh, other bookstores don't exist anymore that, that used to. So a lot of people, I just want to write, well, if, you're, if, you, want, if you have that attitude, you're going to donate 90 cents on every dollar that you make hmm. to just write, which means you're going to just write, but you're going to have a day job too because you're not going to make enough money to write full time. And that's, that's a tragedy because there's some really great storytellers out there. And learning the business side is not that hard. Uh, learning to tell great stories, that's harder than doing the business side. Sure. Absolutely. All right. I want to ask you some really random rapid fire questions now. <laughs> First thing is, what is your comfort food? Comfort food. I really do like pizza, man. How would you grade out Alaska as a pizza destination? If you want pizza, don't come to Alaska. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Go to Happy Joe's in Iowa, Wisconsin. Happy Joe's for taco pizza. That will be the best pizza on the planet that you have. It's, it's like little taco. Everything's fresh. Oh, my God. Wow. And I'm in California. We don't even have taco pizza. That's crazy. On the flip side, what is the best thing about living in Alaska? What do you like the most about it? The unique nature of, of living up here. I, I have to haul my own water. I, I have electricity. That's the only utility I have. I have uh, fuel oil is delivered for my boiler. I have propane tanks for my stove. I have to haul my own water. So I got to buy a big truck. I have a water tank that's 10 feet underground so it doesn't freeze. You have to get lower than six feet because the, the ground freezes to four feet in the winter. Oh my gosh. You have a septic tank. So uh, yeah, yeah. The, but it's exotic. It's different. And it's, uh, we are way the hell away from humanity as a whole. So for introverts, this is a great place to be. Uh, we have uh, 24 hours of daylight right now. It's, it's getting twilighty now in the morning, finally. And then uh, in the winter, we'll have about 20 hours of darkness. So you've wow. got both, both extremes. <laughs> I guess if you And the Northern Lights. Northern Lights, oh my gosh. Yeah, Net- Netflix, we do not, we have, we have the DVD version because uh, our internet is, is, uh, doesn't support streaming. Oh, that's right. We're, we're out here. Yeah. Well, and you guys just had uh, like 
two of the final three blockbuster videos were like in Alaska, right? And they just oh, you bet the the one with uh, with uh, Russell Crowe's leather jock strap is right here. Oh, cool! But they they said they weren't selling it, sandy little buttholes. <laughs> okay, now let's say Disney approaches you with a nice check for all of your work, uh, but you have to walk away from writing altogether, and it's like a weird version of the George Lucas deal. Do you do it? Well, the four billion, possibly, but uh, probably not. Probably not. Okay, how come? Because there's a long-term revenue uh, of these stories that'll be hard to match. And writing is one of those things. Once you do it, and I've been doing it for almost three years, full-time, writing every single day. Uh, turning my back instantly on that would leave such a huge void in my life. And I don't necessarily need the money. I mean, I have multiple revenue streams, but I don't know if I could walk away from that. I, I do have a number of series and would love to talk to movie studios and television studios about uh, various rights to sell, but I, I wouldn't sell the IP outright ever. And that's a lawyer me talking. We will <laughs> license it to high heaven, but... Uh, selling it now. <laughs> well said. Okay. So what do you have next in the pipeline? Like what's, uh, what's on the docket for you in the near future? Uh, I've got a book. Uh, Tim Markwitz has written the, the book, first book in the series of Enemy of My Enemy, an outstanding series with a, uh, a cat people. It's a little diversion from the normal universe in which we write, but uh, it's a good story and I think it'll resonate well. That comes out on the 30th. I've got, uh, I'm wrapping up, I've got the final two chapters of a book I'm writing, Judge, Jury, and Executioner, book two, Destroy the Corrupt. That one will come out on August 14th. It's up for pre-order, so we have to upload the final version on August 9th. Those are those two stories, and then the Judge, Jury, and Executioner, book three, will come right on the heels. I don't take any time off, so I might uh, jam a short story in between there, but uh, I'll write something. I love it. Man. All right. So now final thought, what's the thing from your life that you feel like could resonate with everybody that, that you want to impart with our audience? You can't get there if you don't start. Even little steps in one direction will get you there. I think John Grisham said uh, when he first started writing, it was 100 words a day was all he was trying to do. That's uh, about two paragraphs on a page. That's all he needed to do. And he was producing a book a year, but you see how big he is now. Mm -hmm. And that's all it took was 100 words a day, but, but do it. If you want to write, if you want to open a dance studio, just five minutes a day practicing, uh, which then will become 10 minutes, become 30 minutes, and all of a sudden you'll be going to uh, events and, uh, and enjoying yourself because now you're, you're not that new guy. You can actually help the new guy, like me, two left feet, <laughs> move forward and, and, and have a good time uh, doing what you can do. So you've got to do something. Just do it even five minutes a day. Uh, take it and, and move forward, whatever your passion is. Uh, but you got to commit to it. Don't, don't start taking a day off and find it easy to make excuses on, on why uh, you, you don't want to do this every day. And all of a sudden it'll be a habit and then habits become great things for you. Fantastic. Well, Craig Martell has been our guest on Off the Floor. Craig, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. And uh, it's, it's so cool picking your brain and hearing your story and, and, uh, and just, just so much fun. I think everyone can get a lot out of this in terms of just pursuing their passion, but also that, that, you know, to have the confidence to take that next step. And even if it's, like you said, even if it is just five minutes a day, consistently is going to build up over time. I think that's such a great message. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate that. Henry Ward Beecher said, A person without a sense of humor is like a wagon without springs. It's jolted by every pebble on the road. Well, how 
often do we take a single problem, internalize it, and let it completely take us off course? I think Craig's story is such a great reminder that trial and error are always much more effective when you can laugh, regroup, and try again. This gives any journey more endurance, and for Craig, it's got him all the way to Alaska as the hero in his own story and on the bestseller list. I want to thank Craig for joining me on Off the Floor, and I want to thank you for listening. Quick question. Are you enjoying this podcast? Because if you are, please go to iTunes, search Off the Floor, and then hit the subscribe button. Because if you can't tell already, you don't need to be a dancer to be a great listener of this podcast. In fact, this is really about just going outside your comfort zone. And on your journey outside your comfort zone, I want you to think of Off the Floor as your travel companion. 